My name is Alec Crawford, and this is Stay, a podcast about sustainability, technology, artificial intelligence, and how they impact you at home, at work, and around the world. I am discussing these topics with high-profile guests to give you important information that goes much deeper than other sources. Find out answers to questions like, can artificial intelligence save the planet? And how does ESG investing affect you? We can build a better, sustainable future together. Hello, it's Alec Crawford, and I'd like to welcome Dan Leibovitz to the Stay Sustainable podcast. He is the co-founder and CEO of the Green Impact Exchange. Welcome, Dan. Hi, good to be here. Thank you. So, Dan, normally I talk about your career first, but since you went to NYU Law, I have to ask you who you had for your contracts class. I learned contracts from Professor Bill Nelson. Bill Nelson. Um, but I, I, I will confess that I only learned half of the course because in the beginning of the second semester, he made a deal with us. He said you could either stay and take the exam and get a B, or you could go away, write a research paper, and you'll either get an A or a C. So I went away and wrote the research paper. Good call. I'm not going to tell you how I did because I don't want to brag. <laughs> Good call. And how has the whole NYU Abu Dhabi thing worked out? It's interesting. So, so when I was at law school, um, I was a teaching assistant to John Sexton when he was still dean of the law school. So, and I you know, stayed in touch with him afterwards. So, the reports that I got from him on NYU Abu Dhabi were that it went, it was going extremely well. Now, I haven't checked in on it in a couple of years, but what I understood was that it was a roaring success and that they had really brought an interesting cross section and diversity to. The, what they were doing. There. That's great. You know, I, I looked up the 100 most famous people that went to NYU and the top 25 were actors or directors. Number 26 was Jared Kushner. Any thoughts? Well, I mean, I guess it would depend on how you define famous and what you have to do to be considered famous. Um, and I'm, just, I'm going to point out that there are other famous alums from NYU, like Jonas Salk, who invented the polio vaccine, uh, Charles Flint, who founded IBM, and John Kellogg, who was the co-inventor of the cereal brand. So, you know, yeah, probably, I, I guess probably, that's what I'd say is NYU's done a lot of good things. Yeah, probably too much uh, social media focus on that list. Anyway, let's uh, let's talk about your career journey. What was your first job out of law school? So I started on Wall Street uh, at a Wall Street law firm, Cadwallader, Wickersham, and Taft, which at the time touted it's obviously one of the oldest continuously operating law firms in the country. Um, and And they had a very heavy financial services practice. So my very first project was working on an investigation of um, Bankers Trust. That's a little throwback for some of your audience. Um, and they had gotten in trouble with uh, derivative contracts that they sold in the early 90s. And so I spent the first year as a lawyer learning the ins and outs of derivatives contracts, um, you know, every possible permutation and all of the graphs and all of the, the economic buying. Wow. Yeah. I'm, I'm actually a former derivatives or derivatives expert. And then I believe uh, Deutsche Bank eventually bought uh, Bankers Trust. I remember running into some people there. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I mean, so, so if you ever ask me about what is a wedding band trade or what does Epsilon mean, I, I'm your guy. Awesome. So. And you worked at uh, the New York Stock Exchange for a long time. What did you like about that job that kept you around? So, so I didn't know anything about the stock exchange when I started there. I, I left Cadwallader, I went to another law firm, and then I was looking for something to get off of the law firm track. Um, and a friend of mine had left Cadwallader and gone to work at the NYSE in their enforcement division. 
as a prosecutor. So he said, yeah, come work here. It's a, it's a great place to work, um, reasonable hours and interesting work, and, and you'll really enjoy it. So I went, I was a prosecutor for about three years. And it was interesting. I learned a huge amount about trading. I learned how equities markets really work. And then I thought, well, this is really interesting, but I actually would like to be the guy on the other side writing the rules and sort of making the policy because that to me was more interesting than enforcing it. And um, so I found a job doing rule development and then also took on being the head of member education. Uh, and I thought I had known something about equities trading when I started that position. Um, but I had a room full of traders who were the, the, tra the training committee who then proceeded to school me hard on how, how the market really, really works. Um, and in fact, that's where I went, met one of my partners and co-founder for, for Green Impact Exchange. Uh, he was a specialist and he sort of took me under his wing and he said, let me explain to you what you're really not getting here. <laughs> so. Yeah, I'm a former trader as well. It's, it's, if you haven't traded, it's hard to understand how it works, that's for sure. But uh, tell us more about the... So the, hard part, the hard part for me was, sorry, the hard part for me was, was um, the, the language, you know, when, when they would say, they would rattle off the quote. And I was like, okay, hang on. I need about five minutes to unpack what just happened. And they were already on to, you know, they'd done 17 trades by then. Yeah, that's fair. So tell us a little bit more about the Green Impact Exchange. Sure. So Green Impact Exchange was a, a project that we started because we were, um, in, we were involved in advising capital markets participants, people who were interested in starting their own markets. And we got an introduction to ESG, and this was in the early days of when it was still niche. Um, and and as a result of that, we we looked around. And we said there, there's a uh, some issues with ESG that we think we could help solve, um, and particularly around the environment. And so we thought, look, we it's time. What what the world really needs right now is is a stock exchange for the new green economy. And so we we started diving into that. And I can, you know, I can tell you a little bit more about how, how it works, but the genesis of the idea was we looked around, we said the system seems to be broken and we think we have an idea to solve it. Awesome. So what are the core green impact exchange, green governance principles? So the, the thing to understand about stock exchanges is that they have, they have two roles in, in the economy. One is the one everybody sees on TV and you read about, and that's trading. And so the idea is that there are, you know, you, you have stock you want to buy, you want to sell, uh, you go to a stock exchange and you sell. But that's actually not how the economy really works. What, what really happens, there are 16 stock exchanges where you can trade the same stock. And there are probably 40 or more alternative venues where you can trade that stock. Um, and so, the, understandably, there's a lot of focus in the public's mind on the trading side of business. But the thing that stock exchanges also do is they connect companies to capital. They help companies raise the money that they need to go do things in the real economy. And as a part of validating that a company is ready and worth uh, investing in, exchanges impose governance standards. So um, they require companies to treat their investors fairly. They uh, have rules on board composition and things like that. So we, we looked at uh, what, what was out there. We said, we think we could use the idea of governance principles to guide companies' behaviors around uh, their green transition and their green, um, their, their green efforts. And that was where we came up with these six principles for what, what would I want to know if I was an investor about a company in order to evaluate if its commitments on green transition were credible. Ironically, I would not really 
be first interested in the numbers and what percentage did they reduce their CO2 or how much water did they use? Those are, those are useful pieces of information later. The first thing I want to know is who is the company? What does management say? What does leadership say? So our first two principles were around that question of does leadership have, does the board have a, a commitment to a green transition, a green plan? And that could be, we're going to be carbon neutral by 2050. We're going to be carbon neutral by 2040. We're going to be sustainable, this, that, or whatever. But do they have that and have they articulated that? And the second principle is, does the board have an understanding of who the stakeholders are? Um, so that when they're making risk-informed decisions, they're taking into consideration all the various people who could be affected and all the various constituencies that can be affected. And what leadership has to do in that situation is you need to show commitment at the board level to real engagement. So it's not just, you know, Alec is our, is our green guy and nobody else cares about it. That you have a committee or the whole board charged with green oversight. That you have a green officer at the C-suite level who is dotted line reporting to the board so the board gets robust information. Um, and then... Um, that ensures that when the company is is going through its green journey, that the leadership is looking at us. So that's that's kind of up, at the top level. The next level down is management, and our next two principles really deal with the implementation. So does management have interim goals? It's great to say we're going to be carbon neutral by 2050, but between you and me, that's 27 years from now, and on average, CEO is in the chair for seven years. So 27 years is four CEOs from now. If you're going to get somewhere, a 2050 goal is the fourth person's problem, not the first person's problem, and we want to shift that. So what are the interim goals? What are the things that a company's going to do in 2025, 2030, 2035, and what's the strategy that we're going to use to get there? And disclose that to investors. That way, investors who are trying to make forward-looking, optimistic investment decisions will be able to evaluate where the company's going and how they're going to get there. And then the last two pillars really go about, go down to reporting and alignment. Because it's great to know what leadership says, what management is going to do, but where the rubber meets the road is, are you reporting your results in a way that is understandable? So we are asking companies to adopt one of the existing standards, whether it's uh, IFRS or TCFD or GRI or science-based technology, uh, the targets initiative, things like that. And then to report using that framework. And defining for investors, telling us, how do you define materiality? Do you look at double materiality? Do you look at triple bottom line, uh, et cetera? So that investors can take the data that is, frankly, the most developed piece of this, and they can apply that to what they've learned about where the company's going and how they're going to get there and say, okay, now I have an understanding of how the company is doing. And then the last piece is alignment, which is a third-party assessment of their reporting. So the same way we do audits of gap reporting. We would ask companies to do an audit of their sustainability reporting. Are you following the sustainability rules as laid out by the various frameworks that you've chosen? And when you find yourselves out of alignment, do you have a compliance infrastructure to ensure that you get back into alignment? That sounds awesome. And, and what's your favorite part of the job so far? Uh, every day is an interesting challenge. I, I, you know, I, I spent most of my career as a lawyer, and I got to be sort of the final word on things because I was writing the rules, and that was fun. Um, but this is one day I'm talking to potential investors in GIX. The next day I'm out there talking to the sustainability officer at a big listed company. The, the next day I'm out talking to a trader. 
the next day I'm talking to my staff about whatever it is like every day is, is, is a new challenge. And that has been exhilarating. Sounds awesome. Now, do you need anything else from the regulators at this point? Or do you think you're, you're good? Well, we, we need a license from the SEC <laughs> that in order to become a registered securities exchange, you have to file a, a document called a form one in which the SEC asks you all kinds of questions to prove that you will meet the statutory standard for being a stock exchange, which includes things like you provide fair access to anybody who wants to come trade. You have rules to ensure that your members are acting on the up and up uh, and, and things are on like that. So we are deep in the process of working with the SEC to get the license. Um, it, it's one of those things where you don't want to just file it and, and cross your fingers and hope for the best. You work with the commission before you file to pre-answer all of their questions and get them a, a deep understanding of what you're doing so that when you file it, you have a, a stronger chance for success. So um, we've put in drafts to the commission staff. Uh, we've gotten comments back. And now we're in the process of, of moving forward. Got it. It it sounds like for most companies, they're going to, they would probably need to do a list, you know, on another exchange and green impact exchange, it sounds like. Yeah, that's one of the core things that we learned. So my my co-founders and I are all veterans from the NYSE. As I said, uh, Charlie was the CEO of one of the specialist firms on the floor. Uh, My co-founder, Lou Pastino, was the executive vice president who ran the trading floor. Uh, the third co-founder was Jim Buckley, who was the chief compliance officer and then chief regulatory officer for the National Stock Exchange. And, and I said, I ran regulatory policy. Um, so we all, we all come out of the environment of the NYSE, and we realized that given the state of capital markets today, it's very unlikely that you're going to have a company, an established company who's going to leave the NYSE and come to an upstart. Similarly, if I was uh, you know, the, the PE firm advising an IPO, I probably wouldn't have them come out on on an untested new exchange either. So we said, look, other exchanges that have tried to build listings businesses have foundered on trying to get people to be there, make them their primary exchange. So let's not do that. We're going to be the secondary exchange. Keep your New York Stock Exchange listing. Keep your NASDAQ listing. We want you to keep those. Um, But take on an additional credential that says that you are credibly committed to your green transition in a way that your peers who aren't listed with the green exchange aren't. And so we're, we're, we think we've sort of cracked the code of how do you build a listings business? Don't try and, and boil the ocean. Yeah, that sounds like a, a really good plan. So let's talk about potential governance issues for the exchange and your companies. What are your thoughts there? So we're, we're asking companies to do something that is in some ways things that are extensions of what they're already doing. So from a governance perspective, a lot of what we're talking about is really about process and controls. People often say, well, are you going to decide who's green and who's not? And my answer is no. What I'm going to tell, what I'm trying to do is to create more and better and more consistent information for investors and let investors use that information to do what markets do best, which is allocate capital. The thing that, you know, the analogy is, 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 um, kind of gap reporting. If you think about what does generally accepted accounting principles mean, it means that every company reports the data on their financial health health the same way. And investors then use that information to make decisions. So if a company says, we're going to beat, uh, we're going to deliver earnings of X number of cents per share, and they beat that number, the market rewards them. If they miss that number, the market you know, takes them to task. 
Um, but the exchange doesn't, it, just because the company says, we're going to uh, show earnings of 10 cents a share and only shows 9 cents, they don't get delisted. The thing that the exchange does is vouch for the quality of the information. And that's, what, that's what's missing in our minds from the, the green space. Today, there's an alphabet soup of, of metrics, and there's ratings and ind- indexes and standards and all kinds of ways to measure what a company is doing, but it's not consistent. It's all voluntary. It doesn't um, lead to easy interaction with investors. You have to kind of know what data to look for and tease out. There really isn't an easy way for an investor to understand that a company is reporting stuff in a way that is verifiable, consistent, easy to understand. And so as an exchange, our job is to give them that comfort. Then they can use the information as they see fit. That totally makes sense. So talk a little bit about the technology aspect of running a stock exchange. Well, the, the, the short answer is stock exchanges are a complicated animal. Um, there is a huge amount of technology that goes into it. And oftentimes a new exchange starts up because they have a new idea on technology. We're going to be faster. We're going to create some kind of innovation. You know, IEX came about and they said, we we think that we need to introduce 350 microsecond speed bump to make sure that the market is level for everyone. Um, Others have said, we want to be the fastest exchange. We want to be the the easiest to connect. This is not a technology play. This is really about governance and process. So we're partnering with uh, another exchange, Memex, the the members exchange, to use their technology. Um, And we'll have an instance of their technology. Uh, We'll be our own exchange, but NASDAQ does the same thing. They they outsource their technology for other exchanges. So we're buying what they call exchange as a service, just like everything else these days that, you know, is AAS as a service. Um, you can actually start an exchange without actually having to own the technology yourself. Wow, that's that will help us with connecting members and connecting to industry technology, data feeds, and all that stuff. Wow, that, that's pretty amazing. So, how can we, as a a listener community, help you and the Green Impact Exchange with your mission? It's a great question. I think there there are a couple answers. One is is that what we're trying to do is return to first principles of stock exchanges. I mentioned before there are 16 exchanges and 40 other venues where you can trade trade stocks. There are only two places that a company can go to list a stock these days. So it's a, it's a duopoly essentially. And once upon a time, you know, a New York stock exchange listing meant something. You got to go to the big board and that meant that you were a company of a certain level of quality, a certain level of achievement, financial health, et cetera, and, and companies aspire to that. And the reason why NASDAQ got where it got to is that there were a number of companies that didn't meet that standard. So you know, Microsoft and Apple being two of them went to NASDAQ because it was sort of the place they could list. They were young, they were scrappy. And NASDAQ recognized that and said, hey, there's a market for young, scrappy companies that are going places. We're going to be the technology exchange. Today, Apple, Microsoft, those are some of the biggest companies in the world. And there's actually very little differentiation between a listing on NASDAQ and a listing on the NYSE. What we're saying is we want to be the green exchange. We want to be the place that is, if you're a green company or if you're a, a brown company trying to become green, come to us. And so what, what, I, what I would say to your, your community is 
if you're an issuer and you want to show your green bonafides, you want to show that you are credibly committed, you're willing to do something under pain of delisting, essentially, um, then come to us because we can give you that credibility. We, we, we can give you, your more, it's more than just a promise, it's a commitment. So that's the first thing. If, you're, if, if your listeners are, are in, the, in the corporate space, love to have a conversation with them to tell them why we think we can help them tell their green story. And if your uh, listeners, or those who are in the investor side, we want to give you a green voice. There's no place. If, if I want to you know, send a market-based commentary to ExxonMobil on how I think they're doing on green or, or, or Google or Georgia Pacific, whoever, if I buy or sell my stock at the NYC or NASDAQ, the signal is lost in the noise. There's, there's no green intent behind it. If I would originate that, that trade at a green exchange, necessarily I'm showing I'm voting on the company's green commitment. And so for those of your listeners who are in investors, say, look, we, we, want, we want to be the place where you originate those trades so that you can send a message to the companies, either I like what you're doing, I'm going long, I don't like what you're doing. I'm going short on your green, your green commitment. Totally makes sense. Now talk about how a company qualifies to list on the Green Impact Exchange. Obviously you listed the principles, but are, are there other things like market cap, things like that? So the, the goal of GIX was to be as interoperable with the rest of the market as possible. So one of the first conditions for now, I'll talk about that in a second, but for now, one of the conditions is you have to be listed on the NYSE or NASDAQ. And so our quantitative listing standards, the capitalization, number of shareholders, things like that, will match the quantitative listing standards for NASDAQ in New York. Um, the addition to qualify to be on JX is that you are implementing the things that align with the principles that we talked about earlier. That you have a board statement, that the, you have a board committee, that you've appointed a chief green officer, that you've adopted policy, there's all of that stuff is unique to us. Uh, but outside of the green standards, everything else should look identical or familiar to a company. And are you accepting now, the reason I said, I'm sorry, the reason I said that, that for now it's, you have to be listed. We want to get to the point of being able to do IPOs and having primary listing. So that, that is a, that's a, a day two item for us. Um, but at, going back to the technology point, IPOs are complicated. They're high profile. Several other exchanges have had very, very visible crack-ups when it came to doing an IPO, including uh, BATS, which unfortunately botched its own company's IPO, and that kind of killed its momentum in the IPO, in the, in the listings business. We don't want to do that, so we're, we're going to grow dual listings and then grow into being able to do IPOs. Are you accepting any non-U.S. domiciled companies? As long as they're listing either in the U.S. or they're listing ADRs or other tradable instruments in the United States, yes, we, we would be happy to, to have them. We've been out talking to a number of Asian companies, um, talking to some European companies, there are a lot of com and, and, and several Canadian companies to, to have them list some kind of either a depository receipt or um, if they have a class of stock that they're listing in the U.S. Got it. And what do you think your biggest challenge is over the next year? Well, I think we have, we have several simultaneous challenges, which I liken to, you know, the old vaudeville act where you spin plates on the top of a stick. So we have to get all this plates spinning at the same time. And those are getting the SEC approval. I, I think that one's, we're, we're well along our, our way. And, you know, Knockwood 
we're going to get that. Um, you have to get the companies to come list. We're looking for a cohort uh, between 15 and 25 companies to be in our inaugural class. We, we you know, um, so that that's that's the second challenge. And on that one, I would add, you know, no other upstart exchange challenging the MIC or NASDAQ has managed to get more than two, possibly three listings. So 15 to 25 is an audacious goal, but I think one that given the state of the green economy, given the state of where investors are on demanding more information about sustainability, we actually think that it's it's a, a very doable goal. And so that's our second challenge. And our third challenge is obviously getting the trading community to buy into this. One of the things that we're doing on the trading side is that we're a public benefit corporation. So we have a uh, both a profit motive and a, a second bottom line. And to fulfill that, first of all, we will be a carbon neutral trading experience. Now, we don't own the equipment, so I can't install my own solar panels to run the electricity, but we've been working with um, some large NGOs on developing um, offsets that are what's called additional offsets. So um, they're not just moving the pieces around chessboard. It's funding the building of something in a place that wasn't going to have solar energy or, or, or sustainable power um, and enabling that new capacity to come online. Um, and then the other thing we're doing is we're actually, since tomorrow's Earth Day, I can, I can make this announcement. We're doing something called a green rebate. So many people may not know this, but a lot of market participants, brokers, market makers, get a rebate from stock exchanges to send order flow to those stock exchanges. So we decided that in addition to whatever we have to do to entice uh, participants, we're going we're gonna to make Mother Nature one of the recipients of a rebate. So every trade that we do will result in a piece of the trading revenue being hived off and sent to an NGO that is doing the kinds of good work to ensure a greener planet. So I, I, so those are my three challenges right there. Well, it sounds like you're going to live up to the public benefit corporation at least. And um, it was very important to us when we started. I mean, we, we, we formed it as a PBC right from the get-go because we realized that you know, we as a company have to walk the talk ourselves. We can't ask other people to do things and then say, yeah, we're not really going to do that. Yeah, that, that's it's great that you're aligned with uh, the companies that plan to list on the Green Impact Exchange. Now, are you concerned that a crack in the stock market later this year or a recession might slow sustainability goals for companies in general? I do worry about that, and that's part of why we're doing this, to be honest. Um, sustainability goals... Are, are great when money is flush and times are good. Everybody is willing to commit capital to, oh, sure, we're going to be sustainable. But it's the old, what was the Warren Buffett saying about, you know, when the tide goes out, you find out who was swimming naked. I think a lot of companies who made these commitments when times are good may find that it's a lot more challenging to live their values when profits are pinched and, and they're getting a lot of pressure. And in those situations, that's where a promise kind of falls apart. A credible commitment, a listing commitment kind of holds companies' feet to the fire. It says you can't just back out of it because if you back out of it, you lose your listing. And so in some ways, we're creating the incentive for the company to stick with it in tough times. So if there's a crack up in the market, I, I hope not. Um, we're prepared for it. The other thing I would say is that sustainability is a 50-year to 100-year proposition. It's not a quarter or, or a six-month period. There's going to be more and more pressure from younger investors as they enter the market to 
address both the profit motive and the sustainability motive. We as a planet can't afford it. I have a 21-year-old and a 17-year-old, and they ask questions all the time, like, what are we doing to solve this problem? And that's not going away. Those people are, are coming into the market. They're going to be a bigger and bigger chunk of the market. So sustainability is, is here. I think the green train has left the station. And so now the question is, you know, how do you arm companies to weather the, the difficulties? Now, switching gears here, as, as a politics undergraduate major at NYU, what historical figure or politician do you admire the most? Well, that's, that's a tough one. Um, there, there's a lot to choose from. Um, I, I will tell you that lately I've been thinking a lot about Abraham Lincoln. Um, and I know that may sound cliche, but um, some of the political paroxysms that we're seeing in the country very closely parallel things that were happening in the U.S. in the 1850s and early 1860s, um, where there's this question of how does a house divided against itself continue to stand? And, and Lincoln had a lot of humility about that. He had a lot of conviction that he was on the right, but he also understood that you couldn't just um, say I'm right and posture and not listen. And so uh, one of the things that I wish for our country and the world is that there would be a little more listening uh, and a little less shouting. So that, that would be one of the people I would choose. So for someone interested in finance today, who's let's say in college, uh, and wants a career in finance, what advice would you give them? I would say think about sustainability not as something by itself, but think about it holistically. Everything that we do is going to turn on not just alpha, not just profit. It's going to turn on sustainable profits, um, re-internalizing some of the externalities, uh, economically speaking. And so if you're coming up into finance, think about not just how do I maximize profit, but how do I maximize sustainable profit? And uh, in terms of advice for professionals, what's the best advice you can give to a new chief sustainability officer at a public company besides listing on the Green Impact Exchange? Oh, well, you took my best answer, which was list on the Green Impact Exchange. Um, no, I, I, I think seriously that that sustainability needs to be part of the, the core conversations at a company at the C-suite level. So oftentimes what we see is sustainability is supervised by a CFO or, or somebody at the, the C-suite level, but day-to-day -day it's really managed by a vice president in charge of sustainability. And that's not to diminish the importance of what that person is doing, but organizationally where you sit is a signal about how important the, the company views your function. And so if it's not at a, an EVP level or an SVP level, you know, it means that the person who's charged with making those, the, the implementation decisions isn't necessarily in the room for the core strategic decisions. And so if you are that chief sustainability person, I would push to make sure that you are at the table when, when those decisions are being made at the, the board and the C-suite level sustainability needs to be a part of that discussion. And that means you may need to push yourself into that room. Yeah, I agree. It really has got to be a strategic role, not a, you know, reporting to someone reporting to the board or 
reported the CEO. Anyway, so we're going to we're going to switch gears here and uh, the segment the last few minutes or so is called underrated or overrated and uh, I'll name name something or someone and uh, ask you if it's underrated or overrated and you can tell me which what which way you're going and then uh, and then give me a brief reason why. So we'll we'll kick it off with Chief Justice John Marshall born in 1755, underrated or overrated? Now you're going on a deep cut there. Um, I, I would say underrated. I, I think that one of the geniuses of, of Chief Justice Marshall was the idea of judicial review and that the judiciary had a role to play in a constitutional republic and um, that he established the courts as we understand it today. And we can debate whether or not the courts are continuing that mode, but I think Marshall had the right idea. Televised college sports, underrated or overrated? I'm going to say overrated, and not because I don't like college sports, but because um, I, I, I think it's we, it's professional athletes who aren't being compensated as being professional athletes, and if we're going to do this, let's do it the right way. Pat's Stakes in Philadelphia. How do I choose? Come on, Pat's Geno's. That's, I'm, I'm going to say they're, bo- they're both they're both well-rated and, and deservedly so. Jersey City. I like Jersey City. Um, It has a pretty view of Southern Manhattan. Um, And we are New Jersey domiciled corporation. So I'm going to say Jersey City underrated. Well, I can tell you from personal experience that the restaurants have gotten a lot better over the last decade. Uh, Next, a law degree if you are not practicing law, underrated or overrated? Highly underrated. Um, and my explanation is this law degree. Yeah, there, there's a joke um, in a few good men where Tom Cruise says to me more. I, I forgot you were absent the day they taught law in law school. And I got to tell you, I didn't learn law in law school. What I learned was how to think. Um, I, I like to say that law, a law degree was a PhD in logic and rhetoric, um, how to take an idea, unpack it, play out the various threads to their logical conclusions and make judgments about them, make comparisons, et cetera. I have found that even though I don't practice law on a regular basis, it has been invaluable to me over the course of my career. The Philadelphia Phillies, underrated or overrated? Well, if you're talking about the 1980 Phillies and the 1983 Phillies, then I would say underrated because I, that those, were the team, those were my teams when I was growing up. I grew up in Philadelphia, which I assume is why you're picking on Pat Stakes and other places. Um, uh, I, I think that the Phillies today are a good team. I I have to admit that I sold my soul when I got married and became a Yankees fan. So um, I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to pass on that one completely. Solar power, underrated or overrated? Underrated. I think that the idea that there's this orb in the sky that's giving me free energy and we're not taking advantage of it is stupid. Complex financial derivatives, underrated or overrated? Overrated. I think that complexity is a way of, of hiding things. And, and the first question you ask a derivative salesman is, how do you make money? How, do you, how, how are you screwing me? And uh, if that's the question, then I think the instruments are not doing what they're supposed to be doing. Bagels bought outside of New York City, underrated or overrated? I, I won't eat them, so... <laughs> uh, bagel. I, I, I'm a bread baker. I have made bagels, and even I would say I would rather buy an H and H bagel uh, or Leo's bagels on on Wall Street um, than eat, eat something that I baked. 
And finally, the original Rocky movie, underrated or overrated? I love that movie. And, and I think that it is probably, it's probably rated the way it should be because it's a classic. But personally, I think that it is underrated. I, that was one of the first movies that I made sure that my kids had when they were growing up. And I was giving them the canon of classical movies that they had to have seen. That was one of the first ones. Awesome. Well, this has been a lot of fun, Dan. Our guest is Dan Leibovitz, who's co-founder and the chief executive officer of the Green Impact Exchange. Dan, thanks for coming on the show today. Thank you for having me. This has been a lot of fun and I've enjoyed talking. Awesome. You are listening to the State Podcast. You can listen anywhere you listen to podcasts. For example, Apple Podcasts. Please like, subscribe, and comment. And you can also find us on stayblog.substack.com. Thanks. I can't do that.